I'd like to begin this morning in this message with what James gave in his devotional and where he ended. Then shall the righteous shine forth as a sun in the kingdom of their father. I like that idea of the righteous shining forth, and I thought about the song, uh, we're going to shine and we're going to really shine or something like that. And I thought, would Jordan lead that? And I, ah, I'm not sure. I think that's a children's song or young people's song. Maybe that doesn't go too well, but you know the song? I like that, that idea that there is power. Even in the very light of God, there's power. The title for the message this morning is The Seven Interludes of Revelation. I want you with your Bibles. And I'm not going to I'm not going to shame you if you didn't bring your Bible or you have something else instead of But just take your Bible and open it to the book of Revelation. I think we'll go back to Revelation 19 first of all because that's where I began with a subject. Here's how it happened. I was writing the book of Revelation. I come along to chapter 19 and I had not picked up on the idea of the interludes in the book of Revelation until I got to chapter 19. And then when I read that, I thought, you know, I believe there were some other uh, interludes earlier in the book. And so just scanning the book, I went through, and to my surprise, without trying to force the idea, brothers and sisters, there are seven interludes in the book of Revelation. What we have in the book of Revelation is primarily a glory, the glory of Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God, as a Savior from God, as the judge and the king. And what it largely is about is judgments upon the earth. So here in chapter 19, there was this interlude, something that takes place in heaven. Although the scene of Revelation is largely about judgments on the earth, the scene turns to heaven every so often. Back again to heaven. It's like your storybooks. So you're reading um, a cowboy story. And they're out there, and they're, um, they're wayward, and dumb these cowboys aren't doing what they should. And then the story goes, and meanwhile, back at the ranch. Remember that? There's an interlude. A lot of our stories, the women have their stories. They have their books that they read. The men have their books that they read. There's a, a narrative given. And so the main plot is going right along. But then you have a chapter about something that's happening over here that will become evident of its importance as you go further into the book, maybe not until the end. An interlude, that's what we have here. And so the book of Revelation becomes tremendously interesting, just for the interludes themselves. I was so excited, because the number seven is used so often in the book of Revelation. There are, how many sevens are there? I think I have it in the back of my Bible hole. How many sevens there are? Oh, I don't know if I have it there up seven times. 
many seven times, there are just a lot of sevens uh, you might know. So here's another one. Seven interludes in the book of Revelation. Here of late, when I'm at my desk a good part of the day, year-round, writing these commentaries and writing other books, I've just been so excited about writing. Right now, God bless the efforts I'm writing on the book of angels. Um, I'm about halfway through, and I don't know where all this might take me. And as much as, maybe you can tell already, I kind of enjoy preaching. I don't do much of it anymore. But I told Dave, I'd just soon write as preach. Writing has been so interesting, so inspiring, so blessed of the Lord. Well, here we are with preaching a little bit this morning. And we're going to be preaching about the interludes of Revelation. So we have in chapter 19, but we'll get back to that later. Oh, what I was saying. We don't, uh, Esther and I don't go away very much anymore. We don't have all the young people that would have all kinds of activities involving us as parents. We don't have just a lot going. And so we're often at home. And I'd like to read something interesting, but I don't know anymore what to read. I read some big books like 700 pages, 500 pages, 600 pages. I've read, read some big books in the last couple of years. So every now and then she finds what she thinks would be an interesting book for me. The last one I read was this one about Reuben Yoder that said, there's got to be more. Well, that's exactly a title that fits right here. There's, there is more. His story is a tremendous story of where he served and where they served in Afghanistan and Jordan and Haiti and Africa and Israel and maybe other places too. Interesting story. You ought to read it. But the, the, the part about there's got to be more is what we have in the Bible also. There is more. We think in our lives. So, I've been farming all my years. So it comes springtime again, I guess there's going to be plowing, there's going to be planting corn, and there's going to be mowing hay. And I think I did this for so many years. And I think, is, what else can I do? Well, I'm glad that I can still do it. But there's more than going to our jobs, doing our business, doing our whatever. There is more. And we, you, are picking up on those things that are more, I'm sure. A lot of you would have stories of what you have done in witnessing and sharing and giving of yourselves in various ways. Well, the main part of this sermon is about, number one, our experience in hope, and number two, our expression of hope. Revelation chapters 6 through 19 are specifically about future judgments on the earth. In my new commentary on Revelation, due late March or maybe early April, there will be the enlargement of those judgments. And I didn't find out, I don't know even now if I put in about these interludes or not. Uh, my book is with um, format person, and so it, it's a pretty long process. Because actually, this sermon I wrote out last year in April. 
Because <laughs> when I saw this, I thought, well, this is a sermon. I could use this maybe sometime if I get called on short notice. And here I am, 36 hours, uh, in 36 hours' time, it, got, it was ready. <clears throat> I, in, in my writing of the books, I do everything longhand, and every page I put the date on top of the page. So here I have this sermon was written on April 26, 19, uh, 2020. We refer to these seven interludes as being after the judgments of the seven-year tribulation. Uh, so it would say after has begun, pardon me. <clears throat> after has begun, right. The Lamb of God, as Jesus Christ, is mentioned 28 times in the book of Revelation. There's got to be something special about that person with those amount of mentions. Revelation, I just wrote this in this morning. Revelation is the most heavenly book of the whole Bible. I only wrote that line in here this morning in between, kind of like. So you, you help me out. Am I right or wrong? That the Bible is the most heavenly book, the Revelation is the most heavenly book of the whole Bible. <laughs> we have the first interlude in Revelation chapter 7, so you have your Bibles open. Go back to chapter 7. <clears throat> These interludes involve, <clears throat> oh, this one belongs on the right, and this one belongs on the left. So the, the interlude of heaven will show these things. Meanwhile, in the great tribulation on the earth, there will be these things. Mm-hmm. The center part there is the great tribulation and the things that factor with that. And over here is the lamb on the throne and the things that factor with that. In Revelation 7, verses 4 through 8, there are 12 tribes that are numbered. A numbered people. Verses 9 through 10 is an unnumbered multitude. And the purpose of the unnumbered multitude is to cry loudly, to loudly cry out praise to God for his salvation. It's given in the past tense, which evidently has been finally accomplished. <clears throat> There's an unnumbered company of angels, verse 11 and 12. And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God. Forever and ever. Amen. There's the amen before. There is the amen afterwards. 
which is all very significant. Um, the questions in verse 13, who are these and why are they here? The answer is in verse 14, and I said unto him, sir, thou knowest. And he said unto me, these are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. There is, I'll just forward this without knowing for sure, the possibility that these have come out of the great tribulation before it has taken place. In my book on the Revelation, as a commentary, in due respect to the whole audience that perhaps will be uh, interested in this book, I have some pages to explain why that I think that we ought to let the second coming of Christ be as it's given by the words of Christ in the Gospels and be as it's given in the Epistles and not try to put it into the book of Revelation at some point. I could see four different places where Jesus could come back for the church with some justification. I still have my preference. But that's not a part of what the Revelation is really about. The book of Revelation is about the judgments that will fall upon the earth. And whether believers are here then or not, or the church is still here, I'm not going to go into that. But the important part is that for us who are saved, that there is deliverance either through the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ prior to that or during the time of the Great Tribulation if the church should be here. So these in verse 15. They, therefore are they before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple and he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them, and shall lead them onto living fountains of water, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. That sounds like this. The Lamb was on the throne. And what he provides for his own are these things. And that is, oh, that is so exciting. It really has to do with the Christian's hope. But let's, uh, that was number one in Revelation 7. Interlude number two. Revelation 10, 8 through 11. So you'll turn to that. Revelation 10, 8. And the voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me again and said, Go and take the little book which is open, uh, the little book which is open in the hand of the angel which standeth upon the sea and upon the earth. And I went unto the angel and said unto him, Give me the little book. And he said unto me, Take it and eat it up. It shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up. And it was in my mouth sweet as honey. And as soon as I had eaten it, 
My belly was bitter. And he said unto me, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. We have in this interlude, this, the other little interludes are where John seemingly was taken up to heaven. And there he describes what he saw and what he heard and was, what was told him. Here, it seems like this interlude has come where the Lord Jesus, these are the words of Christ, came to John and gave him this experience. So when, um, the, when he ate the book, it was in my mouth sweet as honey, that is, the message that he has in the, in the Revelation is sweet to the saints. And it's bitter to the unprepared and the unsaved, backsliders and those far from the kingdom. Interlude number three. Revelation 11, 15 through 19. The title for this one is Great Voices in Heaven. The title for the other one was The Little Book. This one, number three. Revelation 11, 15 through 19. Great Voices in Heaven. Verse 15. And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. <laughs> Some of these sound like what's also given in Revelation 19, and I thought about the Hallelujah course. I, I thought, oh, if we could just sing the Hallelujah Chorus. I almost felt like singing it for you. I did it at my desk. I sang it, but you wouldn't want to hear it. But anyhow, that, the, hallelujah, the Hallelujah Chorus is a tremendous piece of music to lift our soul. About as close to heaven as it gets, in my experience. I shed tears in my study, in my review of this, in my preparations. I shed tears. I often shed tears in writing commentary. For our families, for our church, for our beachy churches, for conservative Anabaptist churches, for churches over the whole world, for the kingdom of God. throughout the whole world. For God so loved the world that he gave his... Only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, 
but that the world through him might be saved. God created the world. And mankind to fill the earth. There is going to be toward, at the rate of growth, should be 8 billion people in the world in the next year. 8 billion people. And God knows them, each one. God knows me. Do you think God knows you? Amen. God knows you. Does he love you? Of course he loves you. He loves the whole world. So we are at number, interval number three. What we have here in verse 15 is to show primarily the reign of Christ. It gives it in the present tense. And in verse 17, it, it gives there that, well, I'll read it, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. The reign of God is spoken of here in the past tense. God has been reigning. He is on the throne. He is on the throne. He is on the throne. I was at a church service. The pastor got up, and the first words were God is still on the throne. as though he might have just got back on. They had a prayer request for somebody in their family that needed healing of whatever sort, and the person seemingly was healed miraculously. Therefore, he said, God is still on the throne. God has always been on the throne. Amen. So God is reigning over the whole earth. The whole earth. Can it be? Yes. Not only can it be, it is. It is for truth. The part about Jesus reigning is in prospect. This interval declares that Jesus... Verse 15, the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever in prospect. The time for judgment is come, as is prophesied here in the book of Revelation. The intervals show the activity in heaven, while I think, it seems to me, in in believing how the text is giving it, that there is judgments are falling upon the earth. But meanwhile, in heaven. (laughs) 
That's just so exciting to me. So verse 15 has a great victory rally. And there were great voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. I think it needs to be said that if these indeed are interludes, they cannot all take place at one time. We believe and we, we take it that the Bible is teaching that the judgments of the earth, <clears throat> upon the earth, in this seven-year tribulation, will be by the opening of seven seals, and the blowing of seven trumpets, and the pouring out of seven bowls. They will be in succession. The seven interludes cannot take place all at one time, nor at the same time as chapter 4 and 5, nor as part of the final scenes in Revelation 21 and 22. The flood in Noah's time was not coming and over in one day. which I think is figurative of the end of the world. When God would destroy the earth for the second and final time, it will be not in one day. In fact, Noah was in the ark seven days before it started to rain. Now what are you going to do with that? <laughs> well, what I do with that is to show that uh, this interval, these intervals are spaced, seven of them, in a seven-year period, and um, that they have somehow something to say about the end of the world. will not be in one day, but I'll be by the plan of God in his time and way. And Jericho... What about Jericho? Well, when they came to Jericho, God had said, God had said that um, they should go around Jericho. Was that right? Go around Jericho. Um, oh, chapter 6. Joshua chapter 6. And you shall, Lord said to Jer uh, Joshua, I have given you Jericho and the king and the men, and you shall compass the city, all you men of war, and go round about the city once. Thus shall you do six days. Children, here's your lesson for today. How many of you children knew, and you want to raise your hands. How many of you children knew that Joshua was to go around, it says Joshua and the men of war were to go around Jericho once every, uh, for six days. Raise your hands, children, if you knew that. Children? Okay. So once, once a day for six days. And then what? And then 
they were supposed to go around Jericho and go around seven times. And the priests were supposed to blow their trumpets. They were supposed to go around Jericho seven times, blowing their trumpets. And the people were supposed to not make any noise. They went around seven times. And at the seventh time, they were supposed to shout. And what happened? The walls fell down, except, except, oh, there was a righteous person in the town. Rahab and her wall and her house stood. And when we were in Jericho, they said, we believe this might be it. There was a place there that was kind of standing, part of the wall. Not sure. We think maybe that was it. Seven times around. Seven years of great tribulation. This. Not this. 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 Seven years of great tribulation. Seven intervals in that time. Bless the Lord. Interval number four. Revelation 12, 1 through 12. The title is, The Great Dragon is Cast Out. This particular interval would be a sermon in itself, easily. The implications here of Satan being cast out are fabulous. They are tremendous. I can't bring enough words to it to describe it. Let's scan the book, uh, the chapter, Revelation chapter 12. The great dragon is cast out. Verse 1, there's the wonder or the miracle. Number 3, there's another miracle. Number 4, the dragon is summoned, uh, the dragon summons his horses, his hordes, pardon me, his hordes from the heavens, the evil angels. Now, verse 5, the man-child was destined to rule all nations with a rod of iron, which he will do in Revelation 19 and maybe Revelation 20. Verse 6, the woman fled for the second half of the seven years. It is saying in verse 6, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God that they should feed her a thousand two hundred and three score days, which comes up to three and one half years. The actuality of this being a seven-year great tribulation is highlighted by the fact that it gives it at the point of three and one-half years. And it repeats itself. It's given at three and one-half years. It's the middle one. It's the big one. Well, it's one of the big ones. So there were three intervals before this one and three intervals after this one. I like that, looking for middle numbers. There we have it in a tremendous kind of way. So verse 7, there's war in heaven. Michael and his angels, uh, dragon. Michael fought with the dragon, or the dragon fought with Michael. Verse 8, neither prevails. Verse 9, the dragon is cast out of heaven. And I think I added in my notes, permanently, 
I think at this point, it seems to me, I think I'd be safe in saying that it seems to me, rather than saying it too dogmatically. But it seems to me that at this point, Satan was cast out of heaven permanently, and so he could never more again come to the saints. They are secured in heaven. He cannot slander them. He cannot accuse them. And I think that's why we have here in verse 12 about the devil having being angry. No, not angry. He has, he has great wrath. I think that's why. He has been set back. He can't come to God anymore. Can't come to the throne. The, I believe the saints have been raptured. They're out of his reach. And he has great wrath. So what's he going to do? It says here he goes after the... Um, The subject was, goes after the seed of the woman. Who is that? It would seem like that would be Israel. And those remaining of Israel. He goes after their, her seed, the seed of the woman, and tries to take it out on them yet. And God secures them at the end of the chapter and gives them at a safe place. I don't understand this at all. I don't understand this at all. And with that, we can all, I suppose, most of us could say, I don't understand it either. But you know what? I'm not giving this message as a point of wanting to understand it. What then? I'm giving it simply as a point of believing it. Since, not if, but since it is God's word. If we're waiting to embrace it, follow it, accept it, obey it, until we can understand it, we can trash any part of God's word that we want to. Simply because we say we don't understand it. And that's the unfortunate part about the book of Revelation that so many people are saying, I just don't understand it. It's just so controversial. You know what? There is nothing in God's word that is controversial. I'll stand on that. Because you cannot, and I emphasize, you cannot have controversy and truth at the same time. Either God's word is all true without controversy or if we insist that there's controversies in God's word, we can make it, then it becomes our choice. We can take it or leave it, which is what a lot of people do about a lot of things in the word of God. To make it controversial allows us to just choose our own and find our own way through it and do like many people say, oh, you can take it or leave it. And they leave it. Since the Bible is true, 
and it's testified from the Word of God that it is inspired by God, we are calling people to faith through the message and revelation. We are not even considering. We let the understanding follow as it can. Here's what I give in my, con my commentaries. Pardon me saying my commentaries, the Word of God in the commentaries. I will at various times say that the Word of God needs to be, first of all, believed. It's a matter of faith. That is number one. And after that, number two, it should be appreciated. You cannot love what you don't appreciate. It should be appreciated. And number three, let the understanding follow as it can. There are certain things in life, in farming, in business, in school teaching, in sewing and in cooking, there's a lot of things that we know what works and what doesn't work. We don't know why. But sometimes in life, bless God, sometimes in life we're given to understand more about why. That happens in the Bible too. There are some things that we really struggle with trying to understand in past years, and somewhere along the line, we get to understand a little bit more. But not because we work on the understanding. We need to work, and I will repeat and emphasize as best as I can, that our first response to the Word of God, <laughs> God help us with this concept. Our first response to the Word of God is the same response as we shall make with God himself. Because the word of God is one with God. We cannot rightly divorce the word of God from God himself. So he that cometh to God must believe that he is, that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. At my age, I don't know if I'll ever be able to address you again, ourselves here. To me, it doesn't matter. I'm in good health. I look forward to, I'm, I'm, I look forward to being 100 years old someday, so I'm, I have a ways to go yet. But commensurate to recognizing God by faith is his word. They are one. What we do to the word of God is done to God. Revelation chapter 12 is a very strategic prophecy. I think I had given that why Satan was angry, why he was so full of wrath. <clears throat> we'll go to interlude number five. Revelation 14, 1 through 5, title, The Lamb on Mount Zion. Go to Revelation 14. I hope you're following in your Bibles. Revelation 14, 1 to 5. Scanning it shows, verse 1 shows 
The Father's name is written on the foreheads. Verse 3, there's a new song. Verse 4, the whole family of God belongs to the Lamb and are there with Him. There are times when I could just go to heaven. I could just be with the Lord. I enjoy the work. I enjoy our families. I enjoy, I enjoy everything. <laughs> I'm glad I can live this long. But there are times still when I just wish to go with, to be with the Lord. Verse 5. Oh, verse 4. Yet also says, they are redeemed, they're purchased, they belong to Him. Verse 5. They have no untruth in their talk and no accusation against their past living. How? It's because of being forgiven as a part of the purchase Price of redemption. Verse 4. Redeemed! Exclamation point. Interlude number 6. Revelation 15, 1 through 8. It's the whole chapter. A short chapter. There's a perceptible shift. Not a change of direction. Because the program of God always moves forward. It expands... It expands, but always moves forward. It expands, but moves forward. <clears throat> In interlude number six, verse one is the preparation of the seven last plagues, the third set of seven bold judgments. Verse two, present are those who receive the victory over Satan, evidently in heaven. Isn't this just majestic? I think it's just marvelous that here in this book of judgments we have these interludes that show us, that give us a glimpse, that give us insight, that give us a view of heaven. It's the interludes given as a part of this prophecy. We are encouraged. If we go through the, the Great Tribulation, I don't know. It seems as though at least it would happen mid-tribulation or at chapter 12 or thereabouts of the middle three and a half years. It could, I say. I have friends who um, feel strongly that way, so I allow for that possibility. <clears throat> Ten times in Revelation it has about the words being true and faithful. Does that statement, does that statement help us to accept the words of Revelation as they are given? There are 46 times in the book of Revelation where the word saying is used. It's an oral report. It's the words from heaven. Can we make anything else out of it? <laughs> Except to believe it as it's given. Interlude number seven. Revelation 19, 1 through 10. This one would also warrant a whole sermon 
on just chapter 19, um, at least the first part. <laughs> when I considered this sermon today, I called Joseph Peachy, and I said, Joseph, I've been asked to give the sermon today, and you've been preaching on a series on Revelation. This is what I've been thinking about. How would you feel if I would take up preaching on the seven intervals of Revelation? Do you have anything in mind, Joseph, of doing that yourself? He said, no, I don't have anything in mind. And yes, go ahead, just preach it. So I am, folks, blessed. Brothers and sisters, I'm not giving this at all to indicate in the least way that Joseph's messages haven't been adequate enough. But no, much more, much, much more to complement his good teaching and simply have another message that comes out of this book. I would believe that all five pastors here at our church could all be preaching out of Book of Revelation. I was going to say for a whole year, that might be a little strong. <laughs> I wouldn't want to obligate anyone. I tell you, there are innumerable amount of themes that arise out of the Book of Revelation. It is a most glorious book. Read it in that way. Let your faith respond to the book of Revelation. Every part of it. I will say again, I don't find anything in the book of Revelation that cannot be believed. Why is that? Part of why that is, is because every prophecy in the Bible is a promise from God. Do you believe in the promises? There it is. Every prophecy, Old Testament, New Testament, every prophecy is a promise from God. And what else? Most of the prophecies have or will involve a miracle of some kind. Are we against the miracles? Of course not. If God chooses to do a miracle, who am I to say as a created person under God that it can't be or that it shouldn't be or how will it work out and why would you do that and all the questions that are asked about coming out of this book. I'm just simply saying that the book of Revelation warrants our full acceptance by faith. We cannot embrace what we do not believe. And when we believe the book of Revelation, we are engaging ourselves in just being able to do that with the whole Bible. Maybe I put that the other way around and say that if we and since we believe the whole Bible, when we get to Revelation, we don't change anything. We don't change gears. We don't make it to exceptions. We just believe it all. What I tend to use in writing the commentaries 
is what I call a word value interpretation. Not premillennial, not amillennial. When I taught the book of Revelation in Calvary Bible School, I taught about three times, I think. I would not allow, I would not allow those terms to be used in the class. There was a boy, a young man was there, and he went, he kept bringing it up about the premillennial view. I said, no, stop right there. They don't belong. The premillennial view and the amillennial view can become extremes and detract and take away from the book of Revelation. We ought to treat the book of Revelation with a holy regard and a due respect like any other book. It is the words of Christ that is emphatically, that is, that is given in the fore part of the book with a blessing, special blessing at the end of the book. I'm not able to, to uh, go into this interval here in chapter 19, but uh, chapter 19, 1 through 10, is interval number 7, is the marriage supper of the Lamb. Thank God, we're all invited. God has extended the invitation to everyone. He will provide the decorations and the transportation. He has given this description, and it's all in the Revelation. Stand with me for prayer.